My name is Jason Valderrama, and uh, with Matt Brown, we are so incredibly blessed and lucky and excited and many, many more descriptors, but just ultimately thankful to be able to pastor Redemption Church um, this past weekend for you guys to pray for us and to lay hands on us and to write us those notes of encouragement. It was just, it was humbling and it was so appreciated. So I just wanted to say thank you guys so much for that. Uh, thank you for letting us lead. Thank you for letting us pastor this church. Uh, that's humbling in and of itself. And and there's just no place that I'd rather be ministering in than here with you at, at Redemption Church. So thank you all so much. Um, I just think about our mission statement, following Jesus together. That that what 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 happened last weekend, and just you guys bringing us up and 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 praying for us uh, just makes me so excited about that. And we get to do that together. We have so much to cover this morning, um, probably more than we have time for. Uh, so why don't we jump right in? If you will, uh, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Titus chapter 2. Um, we're going to be kind of focusing on the last half, 9 through 15. Uh, there's a pew Bible in front of you there if you need that. There's uh, going to be scripture up here on the screen. You can follow along there. And uh, we'll jump right in. When I was in grade school, uh, I can remember standing in the lunch line and picking up that lime green tray, you know, the one that's kind of segregated. You have your silverware section, you have your milk section, you have your main dish, your dessert section. And I'm standing there in line, and ahead of me there were two uh, friends of mine. Uh, they were speaking Spanish. That was their first language. They were laughing, and they were doing kind of what elementary boys do in line, you know, not being too disruptive, but not being too quiet either. And as they got to the, the front of the line, as they got to the kitchen, the lunch lady yelled at them. She literally yelled, this is an English-speaking-only kitchen. And I, like everyone else in line, was kind of startled. The boys stopped speaking, and they got their lunch, and they quietly went and sat down. And I knew that what had happened was significant. I knew that there was something um, important happening there. But I didn't really fully understand it at the time. And when I got home, I told my mom about it. And she had lived in Mexico for a couple of years while she was in school. She speaks Spanish fluently. My dad was born in South America. He's from Colombia. Uh, Spanish was his first language. And their reaction, their, their outrage to this story helped me to start to understand the gravity of racial tension. Now, if we were to go around this room, I'm sure that we could fill this whole afternoon with story after story of racism and discrimination that we've either witnessed or experienced. You know, all we have to do is look at the world around us and we don't have to look very far to see that racism and discrimination are alive and well. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to look at God's word because what are we supposed to do when we're encountered with unfortunate truths like this? Praise God that we can look at his scripture. It informs us and it informs every controversial or detestable experience that we're going to see in the world around us. Two weeks ago, we talked about the first part of Titus 2, and we talked about doctrine and how our attitude and what we believe and our conduct show or prove what our doctrine is. And we talked about how religious systems and doctrine are of little value if those who follow these teachings if their lives just remain unchanged. We talked about how doctrine is going to be of little interest if it's nullified by the lives of its followers. And this week we're going to pick back up in verse 9, and we're still going to be talking about doctrine, but the way that I want to apply it this morning is to slavery and then to race, 
And we're going to see how God's grace steps in and lights up the darkness. So I'm excited about this this morning. The main idea that I would like you to walk away with today is that God's grace informs and transforms. God's grace informs and transforms every part of the Christian's life. So let's go to the word. If you open your Bibles, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2. Let's start in verse 9. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Again, we have a lot going on here in this passage and a lot to cover. Depending on the translation that you're reading from, verse 9, slaves, is going to be translated differently. Maybe it's going to be written as bond slaves. Maybe it's going to be written as bond servants. And the, the word that most appropriately, appropriately fits there is bond servant. So the definition of a bond servant is one who is owned by somebody else. All of his livelihood, all of her livelihood, all of their possessions are going to be dictated by somebody else. They were slaves. Now, when you and I hear the word slaves, our minds can kind of drift to transatlantic, colonial, American slave trade. We can think about uh, abolitionists. We can think about maybe even civil rights movement. This type of slavery that I'm talking about here is race-based. That's what our minds kind of drift to. But when you look at the New Testament, it's different. It's certainly not justifiable. It's not any better, but it is different. The slaves in the New Testament typically were debt-induced slaves. That means that some of them were uh, voluntarily uh, entering into slavery and choosing that for themselves. They were people of all ages, all colors, all varieties. Uh, some of them were educated, held positions of power. Some of them were actually treated well. Some were subjected to the cruelest of existences. But the difference here is, is, is stark. So we think about maybe slavery and, and the black and white tension and the slavery of the New Testament is a little bit different. It doesn't make it better, but it's a little bit different. And I want to make that connection. But here's another thing that I want to connect for you, and this is important for our application today. Despite the fact that this word in Scripture in chapter 9, bondservant, is not talking about race-based slavery, it does share a deplorable commonality with the type of slavery that our country was built on. In both instances, slaves were the material possession of their masters. Those masters exercised complete authority over their activities and over their very lives. So there is a connection here. And the question that, that comes to my mind, maybe comes to your mind, is does the Bible support slavery? This is a really common argument. You're going to hear this uh, time and again. I can't follow Jesus. I can't, I can't believe in the, the God of the Bible because if you look at the Bible, it condones slavery. Have you heard that before? What this argument is trying to do is undermine the scriptures. Because if you can undermine the scripture and try to show that this is not God's self-disclosure of himself to us, then what you can do is you can make up your own God. 
then you can say, if this isn't true, if I can undermine this and, and find holes in this, then I don't have to obey it. And then I can create my own God. And if I can get rid of the scriptures, then God can be whoever I say he is. That's the heart of that argument. But here's something interesting. Nowhere in scripture does the Bible universally condemn slavery. There's not one verse that I could have you turn to this morning that's going to say slavery is evil and should not be practiced. In fact, if we look at Exodus, if we look at Leviticus, we're going to see that human beings in these sections are considered to be property. So it's, it's, it's really hard to try and reconcile these two, but I want to try and do this for us this morning. Um, when you look at some examples of slavery in, in Scripture, some slaves were set free in the seventh year after they had served for seven years. Um, there were also instances of foreign-born slaves that were never released. They didn't have this year of jubilee. In Scripture, we see uh, rape and we see different value placed on the lives of slaves versus free. Basically, there's going to be different punishment for rape or, or abuse or, or mistreatment or death of a slave versus that of a free person. Despite these verses and this argument that the Bible condones slavery, I want you to understand that, that this argument doesn't hold any water. It's full of holes. When you look at the New Testament, there's a, a much different attitude towards slavery. It was much different than that was common at the time. The Christian gospel offered slaves as well as free men the freedom from sin and its power. All men and all that all, all that men and women needed, slave or free, was offered in the gospel. Converted slaves were brought into fellowship of the church. Um, we're going to look at Galatians 3.28. I have it up here on the screen for you. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right after the book of Titus, we come into uh, the book of Philemon. And it's a one-chapter book, and it's a perfect case study of slavery. Uh, the context here is you have a slave who has escaped. He has converted to Christianity, and Paul is now sending him back to his master. And as he's sending him back, he says, No longer consider the him as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And what you see as you unpack and start to look at the New Testament is even though I can't have you turn to a verse that says slavery is evil and should be, not be practiced, you can look at the theme and the fabric of Scripture and what is happening is, is not an overt attack on this institution of slavery, but you can see what the gospel is starting to do. And the gospel actually comes in and undermines slavery. It slowly destroys slavery by its power to change individual lives and attitudes so no, the Bible does not emphatically, let me say it this way, the Bible emphatically does not support the institution of slavery. That's the takeaway here. And we as the church should be informed and educated about arguments like this because we're going to hear them so regularly. And likewise, we should be equally educated on the racial tension and the injustice that can fuel arguments like this. We need to be prepared to give a defense of the hope and the transformation found in the gospel of Jesus Christ in all areas, and especially in this one. It should be unbelievably apparent to us as a church that the issue of racial tension has not been put to rest in our country. 
There have been too many painful reminders. There have been racial prejudice, examples of racial hatred, racial enmity, all alive and well in our country. And it's something that as a church, we should be educated on and stand strongly against. Because what's near to and breaks the heart of God should be near to and break our hearts as well. And as we open this discussion about racial tension and and ethnic diversity, I recognize that it could literally relate to thousands of ethnic people groups, right? It's not just two or three or five different races um, where there's tension. Depending on where you live and and where you travel, the situation that you're going to encounter and the relational challenges that exist there are going to be different. But for our time together today, what I'd like to focus on is the place of African Americans in the United States and the tension that exists between black and white. This is the tension that I've been most burdened to understand, and I think it serves as a a representation of racial tension in general. Because the prominence of this, this black and white racial dynamic stems from the unique black experience in America. You see, African Americans are the only people group in our land who have suffered centuries of race-based slavery at the hands of white masters. Adding to the weight of this tension is the experience that during most of this time when slavery was, was accepted, it was justified by this public conception that blacks are inferior. It's been almost 60 years since the Civil Rights Movement And the racial situation in America is not as improved as many had hoped it would be. This is also an important application because the majority of people don't think of themselves in terms of race. None of our dysfunctions are viewed as racial dysfunctions. When you're the majority ethnicity, nothing you do is ethnic, right? It's just the way that it's done. But when you're a minority, everything you do has color. The Census Bureau tells us that the majority culture, which is currently white, will soon be surpassed by minorities. And oftentimes, the majority has the luxury of being somewhat oblivious to race. But for minority peoples, race-related issues are a very present part of everyday life. And if racial issues are silently ignored in our relationships, then the resulting harmony is going to be really shallow and fragile. And really the heartbreaking reality is that since some of these breakthroughs of the civil rights movement, things have deteriorated for a huge segment of the black population in America. The dream of the civil rights movement in the 1960s has not been realized the way most of those involved had hoped. When I think about you know, my time in school, my time in grade school, and learning about the Jim Crow era, and learning about these, these laws, and learning about how the, the, the system was, was, was so segregated. I start to think about, like, what was going on at this time? What were evangelicals doing? And most evangelicals in the North did not think that it was their duty to oppose segregation. They thought that it was enough to just treat blacks that they knew personally with courtesy and fairness and And the racially divided system was not directly challenged. What was challenged was the treatment of individuals, and that's good. And we see this today, too. Oftentimes, white evangelical majority does not address the major issues of racial uh, discord in our system, the divide that we see in our system. We can be oblivious to structural issues like inequality in health care, economic inequality, police mistreatment, unequal access to educational opportunities, 
residential segregation, job discrimination. These things can just be things that we don't even understand or see or recognize. And by not seeing them and not acknowledging them, these structures of racial inequality can be inadvertently built up. And so it's important for us to talk about. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in his letter from the Birmingham jail, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. He also stated that many white Americans of goodwill have never connected bigotry with economic exploitation. They've deplored prejudice, but tolerated or ignored economic injustice. And what he's doing here is he's saying that discrimination has as much to do with socioeconomic status as it does with the color of one's skin. And as I read these sentiments, and as I look at our passage today, and I look at the, the, the climate of our culture, these sentiments from 55 years ago, they challenge me to seek understanding and to educate myself about how the gospel is relevant here. Because it is. It's relevant everywhere, right? The gospel informs us here that, that there's no salvation, that there's no redemption on earth or in heaven that comes through blaming or comes through guilt. Whites blaming blacks or blacks blaming whites. There's overwhelming guilt in every human heart. We're all sinners in need of grace. And praise God for verses 11 through 14, right? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Those verses are music. Those verses are remedy for what we're talking about today. The first thing to understand as we look at verses 11 through 15 is that verse 11 is not implying universalism. You know, you read this this statement, bringing salvation for all people. Uh, universalism is, is the, the belief that all people are going to be saved. But rather, what the point is, is try, trying to be made here is that salvation is universally offered to all. There's no exception of who salvation is offered to. It's like the, the dawning of our, of our sun in the morning, the sunrise. It's visible to all. It's open for all to accept. It doesn't mean that all are going to. The next thing to note in our passage here is that grace is an instructor. Grace instructs us. It does not use the past tense uh, word here. It doesn't say uh, that grace instructed us. It says the present tense, that it's training us, that it has that it's it's instructing us. It's a it's an ongoing process. When I look at this passage, the big takeaway for me is that we're forever students under the instructor of grace. We're forever students under the instructor of grace. And there are three things that grace is instructing us in in this passage. Let's see if we can pull all three of them out here. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, training us, 
One, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Two, to live self-controlled and upright, godly lives in the present age. And three, to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grace is is doing three things here. And they relate to our past, and they relate to our present, and they relate to our future. Grace is, is, is so important, and it's at the foundation of our faith. God's grace towards us is based solely on his love and our total inability to meet his standards, isn't it? God's grace is this, this free gift that we don't deserve and that we could never earn. And without God's grace, there can be no salvation since grace is, is, is that the foundation to salvation. I think about Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 9. Very familiar verse. Think, think about this. It says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us who are in Christ Jesus. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I love that picture. I love that picture of grace as our instructor, you know, thinking about school and thinking about having a, having a, a teacher, uh, having a, a trainer, a mentor, somebody that is instructing you. Grace is that. It, it educates us. It trains us. It's this ongoing process. And, and when I think about education and Christian behavior, it's, it's rarely a, a painless process, isn't it? Usually it involves some sort of correction of our behavior because by our nature we stand in opposition to God. But God's grace teaches us to say no. It instructs us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. There has to be this conscious and willful turning away of our thoughts and our words and our actions that are opposed to true godliness. There must also be this renunciation of desires for things and pleasures and values that are derived from this present worldly system, which is hostile to God. And the true learning of heaven must begin with the unlearning or the putting off of the things and the things that this world says are important, the things that are contrary to new life in Christ. And if you look at the the progression of these verses uh, in 11 and then uh, uh, jump down to verse 12 and thinking about this, this idea of instruction, uh, it's instructing us to live self-controlled lives. Now, self-control was a theme that we talked about two weeks ago. Remember how we talked about each of those different groups of people? You have uh, older men, you have older women, you have younger men, you have younger women. And we talked about how self-control was this, this, this theme that was kind of woven and, and charged to each one of these groups. Well, it's saying live self-controlled lives in the present age. And for our present lives, I think one area of application for self-control is media. Are we self-controlled Christians? Are we media-controlled Christians? Are we self-controlled and spirit-controlled, or are we media-controlled? Do headlines and politically politically charged interpretations inform our decisions? Or does the Spirit of God inside us inform our response to things like race? When I think about Jesus' earthly ministry, It was explicit that his aim was to save and to gather a people not defined by any one race or ethnicity, not a a certain political party, 
but it was defined by faith in himself as the only Savior and as the absolute Lord. That he was seeking worshipers from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Part of his mission was to end an ethnocentric view of salvation. Jesus did not come into the world to endorse anybody's platform. He, did, he just doesn't fit in in our system. He created the world. You know, He holds the world in the palm of his hand by the power of his word. He's going to return someday and judge the living from the dead. And he came to die so that left-wing activists and right-wing talk show hosts would be broken into pieces for their sin and to be put back together by the power of his grace. In verse 14, if you follow this progression, we're going to start to see this theme of redemption rise to the surface. To redeem, the act of redemption, to redeem is to release at a price or to buy back. And this was a term used for slaves who were purchased out of slavery. Their freedom was literally bought at a price. And this illustrates perfectly for us Christ's purchase of our freedom from slavery to sin. At the cost of his life, we were released from the bondage of evil, which by our nature is in all of us. At the cost of his life, we were released from the bondage and slavery to sin. And I love how the, the verse there says, in place of. This is a, a, a depiction of the substitutionary nature of Jesus' self-sacrifice, his atonement. It was substitutionary in nature, right? I deserve to be there, but Christ was there in my place. And this phrase also suggests a, a deliverance, not only from the power of sin, but also from the, the penalty of sin. It's a beautiful picture in it, and it relates to all areas of the Christian's life. Race, doesn't matter, everything falls under this category. When I think specifically, though, about racial tensions, I think about how they are so full of pride. You know, think about the pride of white supremacy. Think about the pride of black power. Think about the pride that you hear in these loud verbal attacks. Think about the pride of despising silence. Think about the pride that makes people feel secure or makes people mask fear. Where pride is strong, there is no hope for the kind of listening and patience and understanding and openness to correction that relationships require. Any relationship. But imagine, church family, what race relations and racial controversies would look like if the participants were all dead to pride and deeply humble before God and before each other. Man, that would be transformational. I love this section. I love verse 11 through 14 and how it, how it walks us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the answer here. The gospel informs and transforms every area of our lives, and it informs and can transform this tension that we see and, and are experiencing. And I'd like to close this morning with uh, a really short section from uh, a book that I read, and I would highly recommend this book. It's by Just Pastor John Piper. Uh, it's called Bloodlines, and the subtitle is Race, Cross, and the Christian. If you just Google John Piper and Bloodlines, it's a, a free download. You can get it on your e-reader. Um, I'd really recommend it. It's a great place for education and just uh, a good starting point. But he says this, The gospel of Jesus Christ 
touches this issue of race in more ways than any of us can see. It has a way of working that goes beyond what we can imagine or predict. It does not simply provide help to do what we think needs to be done, as though we were all wise and just needed a little spiritual boost to carry out our plans. It goes over and under and around and through our imperfect plans. It destroys some and transforms others. Mainly, it deals explosively with us, not our plans and strategies. The gospel is not an ideology. It does not come in as one idea alongside others and make its contribution. The good news that God sent his son Jesus into the world to die in the place of sinners and bear their punishment and become their perfect righteousness and absorb the wrath of God and set us right with him through faith alone and rise from the dead triumphant over every foe, that gospel does not come as an ideology but as a supernatural power. When this news of salvation from our sin and from God's wrath is proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit, it does not come with compelling ideas that create new thoughts. It comes with supernatural power that creates new people. He says the Bible calls us to be born again. You've been born again through the living and abiding word of God, the good news that was preached to you. And these new people will live forever with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth when the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I love that verse. That's Romans 8.21. I want to I meditate on that verse for a little bit. It says, The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's the future hope that this passage talks about. Remember how we said it talks about our past, our present, and our future? I love the future idea here. In verse 13 it says, We are waiting for this blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he came, he lived, he had a perfect life, he died, he purchased our freedom, but he's coming again. And that's hope in the midst of all of the, the, the division that we see in our culture and that we see in ourselves. Waiting for our blessed hope the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's coming back again, and that impacts everything. That's further evidence of his grace, and his grace is there to inform and to transform every area of the Christian's life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are about redemption, that you are about redeeming. Redemption from literal slavery, redemption from spiritual slavery. You are redeeming and purifying for yourself a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, Lord. Thank you for that picture that we see in this verse that, that you are, are about those two processes, Lord. Redemption and purification, and that comes through your grace alone. Before you a holy God, we all stand condemned, and yet by your grace, through faith, we can be adopted into your diverse and beautiful family. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Christ's perfect name. Amen.
I love how this section ends. We're going to transition into a, into a time of communion, but look at, at verse 15 with me for a moment. Titus is, is being charged here by Paul to declare these things, to exhort and to rebuke with all authority, and it says, let no one disregard you. So Paul is saying, declare these things, exhort. And what he's trying to tell Titus is that you've been transformed. You've been transformed by this truth, and you've been bought with a price, the price of Christ's blood. So now, Titus, I want you to go and I want you to declare it. I want you to go to live it out, and I don't want you to have anyone tell you otherwise. Literally what he's saying is, is there are going to be people that oppose you, that are going to try and think around and outthink you and come up with these arguments. But Titus, don't be ignored and don't be dismissed. Stand your ground. Speak the truth. Model this message that I've given to you is what Paul is encouraging him here at the end. And as I think about communion and this proclamation that we make as we take the elements, we're proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. And so the application of this last section for us is Let's make this proclamation together. Before we go and, and try and live this out, let's, let's internalize this and let's, let's have this continue to transform us. And as we do that, we fall deeper in love and we see and experience God's grace more and more and more. Communion is for the believer, those who have been transformed by the gospel of grace. So we're remembering Christ's death. Remembering that he has redeemed us from the bondage of sin. That his body was broken. And we're making that declaration together this morning. What I'd like to ask you to do is to meditate for a moment on Romans 8.21. I'm going to read it once more for you. I want you to meditate on this. And think about how the gospel, how grace enters in here. And then when you're ready, you can come forward. You can take elements uh, here at the front from either table. And you can go back down the sides to your seat. But let me read one more time Romans 8:21 and let's spend some time meditating on this together and then you can come forward when you're ready. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage. From its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God.